From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. My name is Ashley and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. Stay tuned to hear some archives talking about some fantastic food and the animals that produce it. First, we will hear from Terra Informer, Nicole Weard, who spoke to two very different people about their relationships with pigs. Then we'll hear from Myra Radovich, who back in 2013 sat down with a successful woofer and heard about their experience with organic farming. Then lastly, we'll listen to an eco-babble to get you up to date on what it means to be a free-range egg. some headlines. Last week, the United States Senate lifted a ban that prohibited the hunting of Alaskan bear and wolves on the state's wildlife refuges. Many concerns have risen from this lift on the ban that placed restrictions on methods of hunting predators. The focus has mainly been on what the ban will mean for denning wolves and hibernating bears who will no longer be under protection. Hunting tactics such as baiting and aerial spotting can be utilized under the new legislation. Those in opposition to the bill have called the newly legalized hunting tactics inhumane. Alaskan residents have expressed distaste for federal control over issues that they believe should be within their jurisdiction. Speaking of the importance of predators, last month a study out of the University of Alberta's Biological Sciences Department highlighted the importance of predators in the dispersal of seeds. Predator-assisted secondary seed dispersal, or diploendosuchory, yes, I apologize for that, is when an animal, like a bird, for example, eats a fruit and is then eaten by a predator, like a fox. The seed is digested twice which led investigator and postdoctoral fellow Annie Hamelinen suggests it may be necessary for some thick-shelled seeds to germinate successfully. Predators often cover huge distances, so our fox will have traveled very far from where the original plant was when the bird ate that berry. Hamelinen highlights the importance of predator-assisted seed dispersal in the face of human development and climate change because they allow plant populations to establish themselves in new areas that may be more suitable as conditions change. That's it for headlines. If you're interested in learning more, we've posted links to more in-depth stories on our website. About this time, back in 2013, Tara and Nicole Weir talked to Alberta's micro-pigs, Angela Hardy and Nicole Irving from Irving's Farm Fresh. The two of them both raised and bred pigs in Edmonton, one for food and the other for pets. Throughout the interview, Nicole notices strange similarities between both women and the way they view the pigs, despite raising, breeding, and feeding them for incredibly different purposes. Page one. Where's Papa going with that axe? said Fern to her mother as they were setting the table for breakfast. 
Out to the hog house, replied Mrs. Arable. Some pigs were born last night. I don't see why he needs an axe, continued Fern, who was only eight. Well, said her mother, one of the pigs is a runt. It's very small and weak, and it will never amount to anything. So your father has decided to do away with it. Do away with it, shrieked Fern. You mean kill it? Just because it's smaller than the others? I spoke with Angela Hardy and Nicola Irving about their pigs. You'll soon find out they both like them small, but for very different reasons. My name is Nicola Irving, and our business is Irving Farm Fresh Limited, and we have a small free-range hog farm near Round Hill which is about an hour southeast of Edmonton. Hi, my name is Angela Hardy, and I'm with Alberta Micro Pigs. We breed um, miniature pigs, teacup pigs, um, and mini micros. We're here in Alberta. I am a small little operation with two sows and one boar. Page 11. Wilbur was what the farmers call a spring pig, which simply means that he was born in springtime. When he was five weeks old, Mr. Arable said he was now big enough to sell and would have to be sold. So we raise uh, a, an old-fashioned breed of pig called a Berkshire pig. These girls are Juliana, which is actually a breed. Page four. Avery was ten. He was heavily armed, and an air rifle in one hand, a wooden dagger in the other. What's that? he demanded. What's Fern got? She's got a guest for breakfast, said Mrs. Arable. Wash your hands and face, Avery. Let's see it, said Avery, setting his gun down. You call that miserable thing a pig? That's a fine specimen of a pig. It's no bigger than a white rat. So we kill a little bit lighter. Uh, normally somewhere in between sort of 220, 230 pounds live weight. And at that time they're six or seven months old. And I, just as a comparison, a commercial pig would be probably five to six months old. So they actually take longer to grow because they're an old-fashioned old yeah. breed. They haven't been genetically altered to make them grow faster. I do always tell people when they come to get a pig, I say, um, please come and look before you put a deposit down. I want you to make sure you understand the size of an adult pig. It's not a chihuahua, yeah. right? Compared to a lot of dogs people have, they're still small. Yeah, that's true. You know? But it's definitely... And like if people have never seen like the size of yeah. a real pig, yeah. they don't understand like this is actually quite small. Yeah, so, so I have some people who come and they're like, oh my gosh, they're so small. And then other people are like, oh my gosh, they're so big. I don't want that, right? <laughs> they think it's gonna be like this little yeah. like cat sized animal. Yeah. Page 17. How does it feel to be free? Goose asked. I like it, said Bulber. That is, I guess I like it. Actually, Wilbur felt queer to be outside his fence with nothing between him and the big world. Where do you think I'd better go? Anywhere you like, anywhere you like, said the goose. Go down through the orchard, root up the sod, go down through the garden, dig up the radishes, root up everything, eat grass, look for corn, look for oats, run all over, skip and dance and jump and prance, go down through the orchard and stroll in the woods. The world is a wonderful place when you're young. The pigs are 
what we call free range or natural. Because if they were in the wild, um, what would they be doing? Well, they'd have freedom to move around. They would have um, freedom to root in the dirt um, and dig and, you know, live in fairly reasonably sized social groups. Um, and they get to choose whether they want to be in or out. In the summer, do you put them out? Do you have a pen outside? I have a huge pen. It's not even a pen, it's like a pasture. Yeah. And it's around a pond. Oh. They get to run with the chickens and beneath the willows, and they love it. They're in their glory. The first time I had a litter, I heard this sound coming from in the pen. It's like. I'm like, what the heck is that? And I look over the wood, and here's these two little pigs on their hind leg doing this little dance, and they're like banging their necks together and biting at each other's oh. ears, and they go in circles. It's like playing, kind of, hey? No, they're like asserting their dominance, so they like assert this pecking oh. order, right? And so their ears were all like bleeding because they were trying to figure out who's the boss yeah. for like a few weeks. But that's something you can't really avoid, right? Yeah. No. And that's just what they do. So they bite each other's ears. Mm -hmm. In fact, when you're disciplining your pig, um, a lot of people who work with them, behavioralists and stuff, say that um, if it's a domination thing between you and them, you're supposed to bite their ear. Page 27. One day, just like another, Wilbur groaned. I'm very young. I have no real friends here in the barn. It's going to rain all morning and all afternoon, and Fern won't come in such bad weather. Oh, honestly. And Wilbur was crying again for the second time in two days. We, saw, we take pigs to the slaughterhouse every week. We will go in and sort out the pigs that we want to take. We actually select from a pen of bigger pigs. We, we call it the pen of doom. <laughs> but, you know, all of the pigs in that pen are near the weight that we want them. They very happily jump in the back and, uh, like, almost with the attitude of, where are we going, where are we going? Well, it, yeah, it's a one-way trip for them, unfortunately. But, um, you know, they're happy, and that's, that's one of the biggest things that's important for us. And the next day we go back with our refrigerated truck and we pick up our carcasses and at that point they're just pieces of meat um, and it's quite nice not being able to identify the individual animals. It's a hard thing watching them get in that trailer and go knowing that they're not going to come back. I often wonder if if they sense anything or whether they they know. I don't know. Uh, we, we're very good at giving hum, humanizing animals and giving them human feelings. But I, pigs are very, very intelligent and social, and, and it really wouldn't surprise me if they had some kind of some kind of emotion. Pigs are so social. If you just did that with a pig, you know, alone, twelve hours a day, it would get depressed. And um, I mean, they either get really depressed and kind of mopey and whatever or they get destructive and they start kind of wrecking things they're not good alone i guess they are like super smart right they're like intelligence like four smartest animal or something yeah. in the world so i don't know we like humans are social beings why wouldn't they be social beings yeah it, and they're much like a human psychologically Ooh, like they, me. they feel like most of the emotions we do so then they get jealous they get silly they get snooty they hold grudges do they actually? Yeah. Oh yeah, they totally do. They try to teach you a lesson if you do something they don't like. They'll do something they know you don't like. Yeah, it's like having a toddler. To, yeah, it's exactly <laughs> like having, you know, it, a lot of people compare it to about a three-year-old child. Page 49. 
Hello, Sheep said. Seems to me you're putting on weight. Yes, I guess I am, replied Wilbur. At my age, it's a good idea to keep gaining. Just the same, I don't envy you, said the old sheep. You know why they're fattening you up, don't you? No, said Wilbur. Well, I don't like to spread bad news, said the sheep, but they're fattening you up because they're going to kill you. That's why. Turn you into smoked bacon and ham. Yeah, no, so, I can't. Just out of curiosity, do you eat pork? Um, we eat a little bit. It's not like a personal thing against yeah. pigs or whatever. We just, I, it's not our favorite meat. It's no, and it doesn't have anything to do with like. No. I have a hard time with it sometimes if I really start thinking about it. What keeps me, I don't know, on the right side of the line is that I know that the pigs have had the best life that they possibly could have had. It was short, but it was happy. And that, that's the one thing that makes it feel okay. We shouldn't feel bad about eating, eating meat if it was raised with compassion. Page 126. Mr. Arable studied Wilbur carefully. Yes, he's a wonderful pig, he said. It's hard to believe that he was the rent of the litter. You'll get some extra good ham and bacon, Homer, when it comes time to kill that pig. Roasts, so leg roast, shoulder roast, um, ham, bacon. Obviously, everybody loves their bacon. The only thing I would really even be interested for is bacon. Yeah. Because we like bacon. But... As Wilbur watched, the spider let go of the fence and rose into the air. Goodbye, it said, as it sailed through the doorway. Wait a minute, screamed Wilbur. Where do you think you're going? But the spider was already out of sight. Wilbur was frantic. Charlotte's babies were disappearing at a great rate. Come back, children, he cried. Goodbye, they called. Goodbye, goodbye. listening to Terra Informa. Next up, a story from Myro Radovich. Many young people in the English-speaking world choose to travel abroad and teach English in a foreign country. However, the enriching experiences of extended cultural travel does not have to be restricted to the realm of teaching English. Myro Radovich sat down with a young Edmontonian, Nicholas Mickelson, to discuss a program that enabled him to spend almost a year on an organic farm in Europe as a woofer with the Worldwide Opportunities of Organic Farms Network. Many young Canadians choose to travel abroad and teach English to experience a new culture and to gain new life experiences. This uh, is appealing to some, but is not appealing to all. Looking at alternatives to traveling abroad to teaching English to experience new cultures, I sat down with an Edmonton resident who looked at opportunities in farming overseas. His name is Nicholas Mickelson. Can you tell our listeners what WOOF is? WOOFing stands for Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms. And basically, it's just a wonderful program that started in the 70s out of England. There's a lot of curiosity around working on organic farms and learning about how to farm organically. And so it started off as people working on the weekends and spending time leaving the cities and visiting small county farms in the UK and uh, learning about organic farming. And since then, it's branched out to about 99 countries in the world. There is a huge amount of of resources online for people to basically find organic farms to volunteer on every continent. And it's growing and growing every year. Myself, when I first decided that I wanted to go woofing, I kind of did so by accident. 
I ended up looking at a website called the Global Eco Village Network, which is very similar to the Woofing website. And basically, I wanted to travel throughout Canada and I wanted to travel to Europe and visit some relatives there, but I didn't really want to spend any money at hotels. And so I thought that there must be some communities out there that I can visit and I can spend a few hours a day working with them, meet locals, learn the local language, and at the same time get a chance to travel on the weekends and, you know, visit different parts of the country and that sort of thing. So when I began to visit these places, I they started calling me a woofer and that's when I sort of figured out that I was part of this organization unbeknownst to myself. Okay. And where did you travel in Europe? I mainly stayed in Denmark. Denmark has some of the largest and most uh, alternative eco-villages in Europe. In particular, I stayed at one on the island called Fyn, which is called the self-sustaining village, and it was basically about 25 to 30 people, all young families, and they were still forming up, so the eco-village didn't they didn't really share a lot of resources. They just spent some time together eating meals. They would give each other a helping hand, but they didn't share a lot of money together. It was just starting out, so things were really at the beginning stages. But I spent most of my time at an eco-village called Svanholm, north of Copenhagen, and that's the largest eco-village in northern Europe. And they have about 150 members, 600 hectares of land, and they're the largest organic food producer in Denmark. So, very complex. What exactly makes Svanholm an eco-village? Svanholm... I guess they sell themselves as an eco-village. I, I don't really know the criteria of saying, you know, we're an eco-village or we're a commune because I guess they incorporate a little bit of, of everything. Up until about 2003, Svanholm shared 100% of their income together. So at the end of the month, everyone would receive the same allotment of money, regardless of how much they made. As well, they have a set of principles where, of course, they don't use any pesticides. They do use tractors to harvest their food, which is sort of a debated topic on the farm. But again, you know, there's no use of pesticides, there's no use of genetically modified crops. They do have windmills on the farm to produce their own electricity, which they sell back to the grid. I guess why they might call themselves an eco-village is because their main goal on that farm is to live with the least amount of carbon footprint possible. The average Svanholmer emits 2.8 tons per carbon per year, as compared to Albertans, which emit, you know, about 18 to 20 tons of carbon per year, if you don't factor in industrial emissions. How did you get in touch with Svanholm? Like, were there any fees associated with getting in touch with these eco-villages? Oh, no, absolutely not. It's wonderful. It's so easy and simple. Basically, you can go on the Woofing Canada website or Woofing, I believe it's like woofing.com. Or as well, one of my favorites is gen.com, the global eco-village network.com. And you find eco-villages in whatever country or place you'd like to visit. They'll show you where it's located on the map, so they're nice and easy to find. It'll give you a brief description about the place, so you can find out if it's in you know, what kind of rules there are, because every eco-village and every intentional community is different. And basically, you just send them an email, and you'll say, you know, I'm, I'm a woofer, this is my intention, this is how long I'd like to stay. And they'll get back to you and just say, yeah, sure, arrive on this date, and you can stay for this long. And it's usually about three months that is the maximum that they'll let you stay. But depending on how well you fit on the farm, they'll let you stay for as long as you like. What do you miss most about Svanholm? Um, that's really hard to say. Because the eco-village is made up of about 150 people, the social dynamic is always fantastic. Because sometimes, you know, living in the city, you can either be, 
you can be overstimulated, where you're constantly inundated with noise and people and sound, or you can be understimulated, where you find yourself, you know, in a in a home by yourself. And at Sanhome, you always had a nice balance of the two, and there were always lots of young people, lots of kids, elderly people, young families, teenagers. And there's always a mix of demographics around you, and there were always lots of people cooking in the communal kitchens and doing work together outside. And so you were never, you never felt completely secluded, but you never felt overstimulated either. And so I really miss that. If someone decides to wolf and they go to an organic farm and there's not a good fit between them and the people on the farm, what would you recommend Joel do? Sure. That's a really common theme now. It's very expensive to start an eco-village. And the most economically feasible demographic are young families. Svanholm had a committee, actually, that analyzed what types of people work best in communal living. And they found that because of all the debt, there's a lot of young families now in communes. Because young families, it's usually made up of young professionals. They have a very steady lifestyle that's predictable. Whereas young people or old people might stay for a few years and then they get tired of it and leave. But then the revenue for that farm is suddenly gone, so they have trouble paying their debts. So when people visit places, you'll find that nowadays it's made up of a lot of young families, which can be a little bit hard for a young person who's 19 or 20 years old from Canada going abroad, and then suddenly you find yourself with people who are all above the age of 30 and then all under the age of 10. So if you find yourself in a situation that where you don't necessarily fit that in the, into that demographic, I would say... Visit and learn as much as you can, but keep your visit to maybe two or three weeks, which is what I did, and then maybe find other places to visit in the meantime. It's never disrespectful, I think, in any community when you just decide to pick up and leave because there's no long-term contract with it. So basically, if you if you don't fit, just go to another co-op that's more attuned to your worldview. Absolutely. Uh, and just don't overcommit. You never want to say, oh, I plan to stay for three months and then suddenly leave after the second day. Um There were a few instances where I arrived at a, uh, an organic farm or an intentional community, and I didn't necessarily feel that I fit. But after about a week, I realized that these places were, were quite fantastic, and I ended up staying for a month or a month and a half. So. Thanks for that, Myro. Now a story for free-range eggs. How do you like your eggs? Scrambled, poached, sunny side up? Whether they come before the chicken or the chicken before them, eggs are a breakfast staple. Terra Informers, Nicole Weart once again brings us a lovely eco-babble where we enlist some local farmers to try and break down the term free range, and it's one of the many terms that you can find on a carton of eggs. But as you'll soon find out, defining free range is not as simple as it sounds. It may seem pretty self-explanatory, but the term free range is anything but easy to define. Free range doesn't mean organic. It means the animals have access to outside spaces. But where the confusion really comes from is the lack of a legal standard. A farm can falsely claim they produce free-range eggs without getting into trouble. Unlike organic, there is no law to decide what's free-range and what isn't. Ideally, free-range hens would be wandering around on a green grass utopia, scratching up dirt and roosting in trees. But typically, the hens are kept uncaged inside barns with some degree of outdoor access. But the amount, duration, and quality of their free-range has no standards. The birds can be fed whatever the farmers decide to feed them, let out whenever the farmers decide to let them out, and practices such as beak cutting and forced molting through starvation still happens. 
yet the egg cartons can still have the highly respected and sought after free range sticker on them. So I headed down to the Strathcona Farmers Market in Edmonton to ask some farmers about how they define free range. I'm Sheila Hamilton from Sunworks Farm down by Armina. In terms of free range, there isn't really a definition, but if you were to define it, how would you define it? Um, I would define it as, as I feel it should be defined, and that is with more than ample room to run and uh, onto fresh uh, vegetation or fresh grass or whatever you want to put them on at a constant rate. So uh, moved every day and not just out on a little tiny piece that they can say yes they go outside. It should be true free range. Do you think it should be like a legal definition? I think it should be just as they should they need to define what natural means. There's no meaning for natural, there's no meaning for free range. Um, there's just all these uh, words that are used out there that really have no definitions. Mary is Boer and I'm the owner-operator of Four Whistle Farm out by Millet, Alberta. Okay, and um, your eggs and your animals are free-range? Yeah. Yeah. How do you define that? <laughs> I guess in the winter actually we sh maybe shouldn't call it free-range, but everybody does. It's, it's free-run in the winter. Of course, the chickens don't get to go outside in the winter. In the summer they do, uh, so they have out access to outside areas. That's and, and in the barn, so they're not in cages, they're obviously running loose in the barn on, on shavings with lots of room and sunlight in the barn as well. Um, do you think there should be a legal standard for free range, like there is for organic? And yeah, I guess I always believe in the good of the people, so I wouldn't use it if, it, if I couldn't use it, all right? But I suppose it wouldn't be, it wouldn't hurt. I don't know how they would enforce it, but anyway. That, uh, do you, like there are farms, do you think there are farms that use the label free range, but are not actually practicing? No, not that I know of any. Interesting side note, in Australia there has been a recent change to the way that free range is defined. Previously, free range meant 1,500 hens per hectare. Now, the number has increased to 10,000 hens per hectare. This allows for up to 12 hens per square meter, provided they are within 9 meters of an exit. Imagine this, your average bathroom is 6 square meters. Under Australian regulations, that's enough space for 72 chickens, and as long as they have access to a rat outside, these sardine hens would be considered free range. I hope this gives you something to think about. Next time you grab that carton of eggs, picture your bathroom overflowing with chickens and remember, it's always best to check with the farmer themselves to see how they define free range. Well, that's it for this week's show. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR in Edmonton and Alberta, on Treaty 6 territory. If you want to hear more, check out our website at terrainforma.ca and subscribe to us on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors, Shelley Jordan, Carter Borzitza, Charlie Blay, Dylan Hall, and Amanda Rudin. I've been your host, Ashley Coaches. Tune in next week for more environmental news from Terra Informa.